Good morning. How, how are we doing today? Good. Well, I want to talk about a couple of things before I dive into the content of my message. I want to acknowledge a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, about a year and four months ago or so, we had uh, brought on Cassie Shirley on a temporary basis on the staff here to help us with some projects. Uh, Cassie was just finishing up her master's degree in, um, I just, I'm sorry, what? Organizational leadership, thank you. That's always a mouthful and I forget what it is. But she was able to finish up her master's while working with us part-time. She worked on a number of projects, which you're going to see. One in particular, she developed a leadership curriculum, which we will be using next small group cycle to, for some leadership development. Uh, she helped us a lot with the switch to two services, a rebranding process we went through and all of that. Is Cassie even in here this morning? She's teaching Sunday school. So I just want to let you guys know how much we appreciate Cassie and her time, but she has now stepped down from the staff and moving on to other things. She, uh, she's not exactly sure what's going to happen in the future, but she is working in real estate right now. Uh, with her parents. And like I said, she just finished up her degree. She was just in North Carolina teaching at Grace College of Divinity, where she uh, got a degree and where our friend Clem Ferris sits on the board. So I realize that was just a lot of information that I communicated. But if you see Cassie, be sure and thank her. Uh, We appreciate her very much. Also, I did also want to welcome the South Africa team home. So welcome home, you guys. I'm looking forward to hearing the stories about uh, what went on down there. They went down there and helped our friend Paul Simpson uh, remodel a facility and, and get a church launched there. They were actually there for the first Sunday in that facility. Is that correct, Becky? And they sent us some videos, and we got to see uh, it was a full house. It looked like that first morning. Uh, Paul is doing a great work in Africa, and we appreciate those guys. And so looking forward to hearing from them in the future how that went. And lastly, uh, we just got home from the men's rally yesterday. Yeah, 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 we did. A great couple of days away with the guys. Uh, Got to hear uh, from a number of people, got to meet some guys, got to spend time hearing some stories. Uh, You you have some amongst you that really can teach and preach and have great testimonies and those kind of things. So it was a good time. It was really neat to see how, even though they didn't um, organize their messages together, God still wove a thread throughout all the messages, really relating to the idea, relating to the idea of relationships. How do you like that alliteration? It was really about God challenging us through the different messages to relate to one another in our families and to take a look at how that's going in our lives. And, and so I, I was really challenged by some of it and had to do some self-evaluation. And, and so I think it was really beneficial. It was a very good time. So uh, if you were a single mom for the couple of days, I appreciate you letting uh, your husband go, and I think it was a great benefit to all of us, so good stuff. Let's pray. Father, we, we do worship you today. You are worthy of our worship and praise. You're worthy of all glory and honor for what you've done for us when we didn't deserve it. So, Father, we glorify you and pray that you would be glorified in the message today. Pray that out of your word today, you would shine forth into the lives of the people that hear it. Pray that there would be encouragement and strength and that your presence and spirit would be working in our hearts as we hear from your word today. I pray you'd lead us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we've been talking in recent weeks about the Word of God. We've been talking about it in a general sense. We've been talking about specific things like the canon of the Scripture. How did the writings of the Bible come to be uh, pulled together and put in one uh, one book? How did that happen? Is it the Word of God? Can we trust it? Is it reliable? So we looked at... Uh, more than just studying the Scripture itself, we also looked at some external evidences and, and history and those kind of things, and I realized that I, I, I had the benefit of many, many days and weeks of processing things before I was able to deliver it in a message, so I crammed a ton of information into a short period of time, and, so it, and I had a number of people just say, man, a lot of that just went way over my head because it was just so fast. And I would just encourage you, go to the podcast, go online and, and re-listen to those and maybe dig into some of the things about the canon of Scripture and the authority of Scripture that we talked about because they're fundamental to our understanding of who God is and what our relationship with God is all about. I'm going to continue today to talk about the Scripture and the Word of God, and we will in the weeks ahead. Uh, you'll be hearing from some different speakers. Tyler's coming up, and uh, Corey Swanson will be up, and I will be in there as well over the next few weeks. But we're going to continue to look at this issue of the Word of God, and I think it's, it's so important that we do. Um, do I have the PowerPoint? Thank you. It's so important that we do that. Uh, because, you know, we're constantly being challenged about what is true, what is right. How do we relate to God? Who is God? How do we know these things? Well, the only real source we have is the Word of God and His Spirit within us that lead us in that. And so it's important that we know and are acquainted with the sacred writings. I've started every week now recently with this passage and how from childhood, this is Paul writing to Timothy, a young man that he had raised up spiritually. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. We want to be a people that's acquainted with the sacred writings. We want to know what God has said, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Remember that? Pasa, grafe, theonustos. All Scripture breathed by God we talked about last week and the importance and the value of that. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God, that they've maintained their accuracy through the ages, that God has preserved His Word for His people. And when we look at the Word, we, the Word itself teaches us how to interpret it, how to understand God, how we live our lives and relate to Him, and all those kind of things. And so we, we lean heavily on the Word of God as our final or our ultimate authority uh, when making decisions about doctrine or who God is. We want to be familiar with that. And I want to emphasize it's not just for someone that went to Bible college or somebody that is a leader in a church. It's for everybody. Everybody has a relationship with God. And I think it's very important that we don't just leave it up to the, the few or the elites, if you will, to understand the Scripture. I think we are all called to understand what God has said to His people. I want to uh, look at a story that Jesus told, a parable, and some information, I guess, really, a uh, metaphor, and he says, everyone who hears these words of mine, okay, we hear the word, the word comes in, we learn from it, it goes into our minds and into our spirit, and does them, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on 
the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And he goes on. And everyone who hears these words of mine, we hear them, they go into us, they go into our minds, etc., and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We want to be people who hear the Word of God and understand the Word of God and take action based on the Word of God, that we might be wise and build our, build our house, build our lives, our spiritual lives and our families and our churches in such a way that when the winds beat against us in life, we're able to stand because we have built wisely. We've put the right things into our foundation. We've taken actions based on the Word of God that are true and right and oriented towards Him and not our own ways or our own thoughts. If we hear those things but we don't put them into practice, we are foolish. And when the storms of life come our way, the house collapses because we can't stand. We're not built on a firm foundation. So Jesus is emphasizing, you hear these words of mine, how do we hear those words today? Jesus doesn't show up on Sunday morning in a physical way and tell us everything we should do. He's given us his word to instruct us and teach us and lead us in relationship with him. So how do we build on that foundation of rock? We hear his words and we do them. I want to start talking today about maybe maybe you'd call it understanding the scripture, reading it for yourself, Um, interpreting the word. How do I draw meaning out of what I'm reading? Probably one of the major complaints I always hear from people is that I I, I open up my Bible and I read something and I don't know what it means. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do with it. I don't understand how it applies to my life. There's some really wild stories in the Bible that are, I just can't even wrap my brain around. Like what, I don't know how to interpret what I'm reading. I don't know how to pull it. I don't know how to put it into practice. If Jesus is telling me to build my house upon the rock and and take those words and and apply them in my life, how do I do that? And so I want to start to talk about that probably the next couple times, this time and probably the next time that I speak, we'll be talking about how do I interpret? How do I read it? How do I understand it? I want to start by saying that to understand the Scripture is not a magical or mysterious process. It wasn't something reserved for scholars and spiritual uh, elites. It was, it was written to the people. It was written in the common language. It was distributed throughout the nation of Israel early on. The elders in Israel knew it. Clearly, when we read the Scripture, there were many people that knew what it said and were familiar with its teachings. I think it's something that we sometimes get intimidated by, by, like, I have to have this theology degree. Well, theology degrees didn't even exist until the recent years, right? There were many people who could read and understand the Scripture and, and help teach and learn, and were all meant to absorb and understand. We have an unprecedented access today. I know I've talked about this already a little bit, but bear with me. You and I have an unprecedented access to the Word of God today. Even though we see that in some ancient times the writings were distributed, surely not every household could have had one. It was very difficult to make a copy of the Scripture. Maybe the local synagogue did and and those kind of things and those scrolls were accessible, etc. 
But today, every household probably has more than one. I mean, if you stopped and thought about how many copies of the Scripture you have and the different translations and and writings of it, how many do you have? It's very available. On my iPad right here, I can pull up my Bible app and I can look up just about every translation uh, common to, to our time here and look at it and read it and see what it has to say. We have an unprecedented access, and so we don't really have any excuse to not be spending time uh, reading the Word of God and studying it and learning about it. So I want to challenge you. I, I, I hope you're a little provoked, maybe even a little irritated by me, <laughs> uh, trying to get you to read your Bible, read the Scripture. Even though it can be hard to understand and hard always to know what to do, you aren't alone in that. This is something else I really want to emphasize. The kingdom of God is in the context of community. A kingdom is a community. It's a group of people. We are, we, like as talk, we talked at the men's rally, we're meant for relationship. We aren't meant to be rugged individuals or, or radically independent people. It really is something that makes uh, life difficult when we behave in that way. But actually, when we read the Scripture, we have people around us who are teachers. We have other people who are further along in their understanding than we are. We have people around us, a community around us, to keep us accountable and on track with our different understanding. And when you, a group of people get together and discuss the Scripture, you can work towards a more accurate understanding uh, based on what people see and read and understand about the Scripture. But, you know, if you're a, you know, in the... I guess I would say in the theological world, when they're talking about uh, interpreting Scripture, there would only really be four sources of information that we have when you're reading your Bible and trying to understand it. Four uh, sources of information. Number one would be the meaning of the individual words and the sentences. Okay, when I'm reading my Bible, here's one of my sources of information. I know what the words mean. The dog jumped over the fence. I know what a dog is. I know what jumped is, and I know what a fence is. So I can understand what it says because I know the language and I know the meanings of the words. And so when we're looking at the Scripture, and even in the translations, or even looking back at Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and those kind of things, we, there are meaning behind the words. And so this is, just, this is just very logical kind of a thing here. I know the meanings of the words and sentences, so I can draw meaning out of what it actually says. But there are other things that factor in to my understanding of what the Scripture has to say. The place of the statement in its context. Context is a very important concept when it comes to interpreting the Scripture, or anything for that matter. What is going on in this situation where this statement is being said? Does it somehow influence my interpretation of the Scripture? And I will be talking about some of that later on in my message today. So I have individual words in their sentence. I also have some context to help me understand what it says. What is that context? I have the overall teaching of Scripture. The Scripture is a narrative. It's a history, you know, just like we have, we have music history, or maybe you had to sit through boring world history classes in high school, or things like that. We have histories of things. Really, the Bible is a salvation history. Or a God history. Who is God? What is the story of salvation? What is the story of man's relationship with God? And so there's an overall narrative. Even though it was written by many, many authors, there was still one overall author throughout. And we talked about this in days gone by. God was behind the authorship of the scriptures, the sacred writings. 
So when we're, when we're interpreting the Scripture and we look at it, we have to understand what the overall story of Scripture is. Otherwise, sometimes we miss some of the meaning that we find in the Scripture. Number four, some information about historical and cultural background. Some of the information that we know about history or about cultures can also help us understand what was being said in that time and that place. And we'll look at some of these today, but if you've studied the Old Testament at all, or the Jews, or maybe you're a history buff and you, you know about the Babylonians and the Babylonian Empire, or maybe you know about the Assyrians and the Assyrian Empire, and, and so sometimes that can add some helpful information to understand what's going on in the Scripture when we read it. Don't be intimidated by the Scripture. Don't be afraid to read it. I would encourage you, challenge yourself to read it for yourself. Spend some time, whether in the evening or the morning or when you have a chance, looking at the Scripture and starting to think about, what does this mean? How does it apply? Okay, I know you think I'm probably going to go down a bunch of uh, maybe um, analytical or you know, scholarship type things about how to interpret the Bible. Well, I got to learn Greek first, and then I got to learn Hebrew, and that'll take me at least 10 years. So, you know, no, really, there are some very simple things uh, about interpreting the Bible that we should know. And I already told you the number one rule last week, I think, about learning how to interpret the Bible. The number one rule, you read it. You read it. Number one rule for interpreting the Bible you read it. All right, well, what do I mean by this? Well, there's, we could go way into depth on this, but I think it has to do with um, where do you get your information? What do you know about the Bible? Well, I watched a Discovery Channel uh, documentary on it, and sometimes I actually listen when JR is preaching, so I've learned some things about it from there. And uh, my, uh, my, one of my teachers and, oh, my mom and dad, and, you know, that's what I know about the Bible. I've received information from other sources. And so I, I know that the Bible says that uh, money is the root of all evil, right? Right. Yes, you paid attention last week. Nice job. You know, and so we, we, we draw our information from uh, secular society or other people that know God, but you have a responsibility to know God. This is your relationship with God. Nobody else's. This is your relationship with God. Own it. Teachers and people's commentaries and, and all those kind of things are valuable. They're very helpful. We need those things in our life. They're part of our process. I don't want to minimize that too much, but I think sometimes we often end up relying on everybody else to tell us what the Bible says rather than reading it for ourselves so that we know. And I think there are some benefits in that. You know, there's some deeper benefits than just the knowledge portion of it that you would know, but as we'll look at a little bit later, there's spiritual words and there's spiritual nourishment for our souls. And so when we read it, God speaks to us through his words right then and there in the text. So that's very helpful that we would read it ourselves. We kind of overuse this analogy, I think, sometimes, but with the whole issue of counterfeit money and how you get trained to spot counterfeit money. You don't get trained to spot or know counterfeit money by studying counterfeit money. You, get, you know what counterfeit money is by studying real money. So that all of a sudden when you're holding a piece of money that's not real money, you know it. Because you're so familiar with what real money is that fake money stands out. 
And sometimes we, that's, that's kind of a concept about knowing the word of God yourself. Study the real thing yourself. Know what it says for you. We looked last week at the story of Jesus dealing with the temptations of Satan. Remember? And how did Jesus deal with it every time? He used the word of God. And even when Satan twisted the word to tempt Jesus, Jesus still was familiar enough with the word to know how to use it and to ultimately deal with Satan directly. That is an example for you and I. Oh, you could, I mean, sometimes we make the excuse, oh, it was Jesus. I mean, come on, I can't be him. But I think it's, Jesus came to be an example to us too, to show us how to be human, to show us how to relate to God. And he knew the scripture right then and there. I don't think he pulled out his iPad and Googled scriptures in order to deal with Satan. I mean, I guess he probably could have. He was Jesus. He might have had an iPad. But I don't think he did. He knew what the word said. Another example of Jesus, I just, this is just sort of a side note, but remember in the synagogue when he's first coming into ministry and he asks for the scroll from Isaiah and he opens the scroll and he reads it and says, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, but it was one long scroll. And Jesus knew where to go. It's just a simple little thought to maybe consider. Jesus knew the word. And really, as you see the teaching of his apostles from those years on, they knew the word. And you're talking about people who didn't have access probably quite like we do. And they didn't have this nice bound book with thousands of pages of writings at their disposal. We need to be people that read the word ourselves. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What is your word is? God's word is. My second point kind of preliminary or no, it's not preliminary. It's actually a tool for you and a thought to interpret the scripture is to invite God into your process. Wouldn't you love to get to meet your favorite author? I know some of you don't read books, so you don't even know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Or some actor or something, you know, like Oh, I'd like to actually know that person. Isn't it cool that they did this work? They acted in this movie. They wrote this book. My favorite poet, my favorite musician. It'd be cool to actually meet them and spend some time with them in person. Well, you can know the author of this book, the one whose spirit breathed these words into existence to give us spiritual life and understanding. I, he, He's... There's spiritual words, and, and God is spirit, and God is with us. God has restored his relationship with us through the blood of Jesus Christ. You want to invite God into your process. Pray when you read the word. Just like we did before, before I started speaking this morning. Just pray, God, I invite you to be a part of my process today. I invite you to teach me and give me understanding of what you are saying here. And our spirit and his spirit work together and he teaches us. There's there's affirmation and leading and direction that he gives as we read his word. I want to, before I go on to this point, I want to read a scripture. And I forgot to put the address here. I believe it's 1 Corinthians. It said, these things God has revealed to us. Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything. What Spirit? God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God searches everything, even the depths of God. Oh, if I could know the depths of God. 
What is that? For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We have received a spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. How do we understand the things freely given us by God? His spirit is in us. We have access to him. And we, he, I believe and we believe and teach. He is speaking. So even though God didn't uh, probably appear in, in Seth's office and tell him what to say, or appear to Jeff in a dream, or in, appear to John Quigley to tell him what to preach at the men's rally, he still was inside urging something along, speaking, urging, pushing. And they, these messages, each one of them individually came up with a message, and then come to find out God was weaving something the whole time. God is at work teaching and speaking and leading us. And we need that as a part of our process when we're studying the Word of God so that we can understand it more fully. Paul goes on to say, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Important concept there. For they are folly to him. Yeah, I'm going to go there for a second. When we're talking about interpreting the Scripture, I think sometimes when we, when we approach things from a totally scholastic point of view, I mean, this is one of the reasons that uh, most, um, I don't know, historians, scientists, uh, those types of people uh, would not believe that the Scripture is accurate. They would point out to all these different things and say, well, this isn't true. Well, why is it not true? Because miracles don't happen. We, they, there's an approach in the secular world to the Scripture with a presupposition that miracles don't happen. I have already know that it's a fact that miracles don't happen, therefore the Bible can't be true. You understand what I'm saying? I've already made up my mind that this is historically inaccurate because there are some archaeologists that believe that Jericho fell 200 years after the Scripture said it did. So because the historians don't agree, then the Bible must be inaccurate. You hear what I'm saying? So what do we decide is authoritative? When God, if God says that His Word is authoritative and it is a representation of Him and it is a witness for us, I am caught in this thing of having to decide which carries more weight, my presupposition that miracles don't happen or what the Word of God actually says, which is true. And so people approach their interpretation of the Word of God presupposing that certain things are true. Well, there is no God, so the Bible can't be true. Jesus didn't really exist, so the Bible can't be true. Pre-deciding. And the, the things of the Spirit are folly to our natural man. Our natural man is totally dependent on you and I, not just people outside of Christianity. We, we end up just thinking, if it's not rational, it can't be true. If it doesn't follow perfect humanistic logic, it must not be true. And yet Paul is instructing us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And oh, when we get made fun of, that's how it feels for what we believe. People mock Christians, make fun of us, and it hurts and it's painful because to them it's folly. You're a fool for what you believe. There's no way that could be true. 
And yet, there's something in our spirit that goes, no, there's faith. I do believe it's true. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. When we read the word of God, we have to keep in mind that there is also a discernment going on and some understanding that has to kick in in a spiritual way. All right, let's start talking about context. We talked about rule number one, read it. In fact, rule number two is read it, and rule number three is read it as well, right? So read it, read it, read it. Okay, number two, invite God into your process. If you want to read the Bible to understand it, you have to invite God into your process. Pray, ask him. God is faithful. He loves you. He loves you, and he wants to build his relationship with you. So he will lead you and guide you in that. Context often stirs up a lot of controversy about what is true and not true in the Bible. And I'm hoping in the weeks ahead to maybe some, unpack some of the more controversial scriptures. I'm probably not going to do much of that today. But context, really when we're talking about context, we, we, we ask ourselves this question. What is the author trying to communicate with the reader? What is actually being said? What is actually being communicated to the reader in this situation? What did the author want the reader to understand from the story? Scripture was originally written by someone to communicate something to a group of people. If I want to begin to understand what the Scripture is saying, I want to know what that was because it informs my understanding of the meaning. Because, see, we need to remember that the Bible quotes Satan himself. So if I open up and see what Satan said, and I have no context, or I don't even know who Satan is, or I don't know what's going on here, I say, well, that's the word of God, so it's true. I can throw myself from here, from this cliff, and the angels will catch me and keep me from hurting myself, because that's what the scripture says, right? Well, we have to understand context. What is actually being communicated from the author to the audience? The scripture in Jeremiah uh, this whole argument about things in context and out of context, I mean, people are going to get riled up. I'm pro- you know, probably you're already stirred that I even said the word context today because that gets, really can be manipulated and abused. And, and so we want to just kind of start with some basics about context. There's a great scripture, I think, that, that we quote a lot. I can't remember if I put it up. Oh, here we go. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Have you heard this scripture before? It's a very popular one. Why? It's full of hope and good, right? But I think we need to start by asking ourselves, what is the context of this statement? Who is saying what to who? Where is it? What's going on here? Well, I'm going to go and I'm going to read the verses surrounding this verse so you get an idea of what actually is being communicated in this situation. For thus says the Lord. Okay, so this must be prophecy. It's God speaking. Someone's saying this. When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. Oh, what's going on here? There's a prophecy to the Israelites. They're being, they're, they either have been already or they're about to be carried off into exile into Babylon. And they're not happy about Jeremiah's prophecies about being defeated and carried off into as the spoils of war. Oh, so God's talking to the Israelites and he's saying, I will visit you while you're in Babylon after you've been there for 70 years and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay. This word was originally spoken by God to the Israelites when they were going into exile, and he's reassuring them that he will fulfill his promise, that he will bring them back. I know my plans for you. I have a future and a hope for you. Okay, so does that not apply to me today? This is where we start to get into the tricky parts of interpreting Scripture. How do I know this applies to me today? Can I lean on this scripture in some way? Is this true for me? For God knows the plans he has for me, and he has plans for welfare and not evil, and to give me a future and a hope. I've had a lot of evil happen in my life. Is this not true for me? This is one of those things where I think it's really important we understand the context. But in this particular case, I think we can say, that this does apply to me. Why? Because the overall narrative of the Scripture is that Jesus has come to give us a hope, that Jesus has come to give us a future, that he has, does God know his plans for us? Yes, that's true. So I know by more than just this Scripture that it can apply to my life today. Even though it wasn't specifically spoken to me, it actually was given to the Israelites who were about to be carried off in battle. But I, can, I, know, I still can interpret it and know that it applies to me because I know that there's also a little bit of a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself in here. Why did Jesus come? To give us a future and a hope that God had a plan to redeem us from captivity. So in this case, I think its context is interesting, but I don't think it necessarily changes the application of it. But there are many others that we have to realize uh, don't necessarily apply. While we may be able to draw on the whole of scriptures to realize that this has value to us, the real promise was made to the Israelites who were headed into Babylon as captives. We can take things out of context a lot. I mean, we talked a little bit about the story of Jericho. You know, the Israelites cross the River Jordan, and God instructs them to take uh, to destroy the city of Jericho. And how does he instruct them to do that? Well, I want you to march around the city once a day for a bunch of days, and then I want you to march around the city seven times on the last day, and then I want you to blow trumpets, and the whole thing's going to collapse, and you will have the victory. Okay, I know that that took place at a certain point in time, but if I just opened up to that and took it out of context, I could say, all right, this is my new military strategy for every single city I decide I want to take. Because all of you are into conquest, right? Well, God spoke it. God did it. That's his method. That's the way he's going to do it. So I need to march around things lots of times in order to get my way. Well, no, that would be taking something out of context and applying it in a way that doesn't make any sense. Maybe that's not a very good example. What about Ezekiel? Talk about a strange character in Scripture. For those of you that know the story, I shouldn't say that about somebody that God authorized to write Scripture. (laughs) But he did some strange things, let's put it that way. God instructed him to shave his beard with a sword. Men's rally next year, huh? 
shave with a sword. God wants us to do that because the Bible says so. Can I draw out of those passages that it's God's will that men shave with swords? Now, we laugh, but why? How do we know? How do we know that? How do we know God doesn't think we should all be shaving with swords? I think that's a really good idea. That could be my million-dollar new idea. Instead of Dollar Shave Club, it'll be Sword Shave Club. I'll send you a new sword every month to shave your face with. It's, it's, if I understand the context and what the prophetic act that God is instructing Ezekiel to do to, to, to bring a message to his people, then I go, oh, that's why. That's why Ezekiel did all those strange things. Because God was demonstrating something. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to shave my beard with a sword, although I think it'd be cool. How about other things we, we kind of we, we, we take out of context or things in the Scripture? Oh, here's a good one. The Old Testament is all about an eye for an eye, right? Eye for an eye. We hear that all the time. I hear that a lot. That couldn't have been, God's not loving. It was an eye for an eye, right? Well, where does, that, where does the Bible say that? Where does that come from? Jesus says, you, you've heard an eye for an eye, and then he goes on to talk about turning the other cheek, right? But if you go back in the Old Testament, you study where that passage is about an eye for an eye, it actually is one of the, the Jewish laws. If two men got in a fight, and a pregnant woman got hit and lost her baby, or a part of the baby was handicapped or damaged, then, it would, then, they, then God's, God's instruction for punishment for that person was an eye for an eye, a foot for a foot, a hand for a hand, a life for a life. If the baby got killed because two men were fighting, the man that caused it would himself be killed because he caused the death of that unborn child. So can I decide that the whole Old Testament is about an eye for an eye and God was just all about vengeance for vengeance because of that passage? No, I've taken it out of context and made it apply to a bunch of things that it does not apply to. How about the issue of slavery? I hear this all the time. The Bible condones slavery. It does? Have you read that? Do you know that in the Old Testament, it was a capital offense to sell or buy another human being? Slavery, in that understanding of the word slavery, was punishable by death. The Bible did not contone the slavery because we, we, we correlate it to American slavery, which was, I'm not defending that at all, it was heinous. I mean, we picture people being beaten and bought and sold for money, and that's what we think slavery in the Bible was. And it, for many cultures at times, it was that way. But God's instruction to his people was not that way. And in fact, he encourages, because slavery in that understanding was, in the biblical understanding was, was often, more often than any other circumstance, was to pay off a debt. Because I owed somebody money, so I became uh, a bond servant to that person while my debt is being repaid. And the Jews had a system where, like in the years of Jubilee, or even every seven years, I think, the, the slaves were released and forgiven their debt. It's not a slavery that we, we just, we, we interpret by our own context, but we don't look at the context of what actually happened in order to draw our meaning and understanding out of the Scripture. Even in the New Testament, Paul with writing uh, to Philemon about Onesimus, or in situations where a person is poor and working for a wealthier person, you know, they're a bondservant to that person, treat them like brothers. At communion, this is a big thing in church history in the first century, the slaves or the bondservants, I guess I should use that word so that we can differentiate, sat at the same table as their masters. They ate together at the same table, totally broke all cultural boundaries in order to do that. 
It was part of what God had instructed them to do. When we take context into consideration, it actually heightens our understanding of what actually was going on in the Scripture. Okay, I got one more point that I can cover today in interpretation and context. We want to avoid fanciful allegory when we're interpreting the Scripture. What do I mean by that? If you have your Bible, would you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17? Famous story you probably already have memorized, so maybe you don't need to turn there. And it's of a young man named David and a giant named Goliath. Perhaps you've heard of them. Fanciful allegory. Well, there's the story. David comes to the battlefield and he sees what's going on and he hears the curses of this Goliath out there and he's, he's angered by this. It's not just, it's not right. So David goes to Saul and he says, I'll take care of this guy for you. And they're all kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah, right. But David says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. Lions, plural, and bears, plural. You ever notice that? And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And so what happens? Saul gives his armor to David. And David puts on Saul's armor. And he puts on Saul's sword. And what does he do? This isn't going to work for me. The armor doesn't fit. Saul was a big man. David was a youth. I assume they weren't the same size. And so David puts off the armor. And then David goes out and he takes five smooth stones from the stream. And you know the story. He goes on to defeat the giant. And when he's confronting Goliath, he says, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. This is verse 45. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Wow. All right, well, what does that mean, Saul's armor? Oh, man, let's, let's think about it. Well, clearly Saul's sword is false doctrine and his, his armor is uh, occultic practices. Yeah, you're never going to win a battle with those things. That's what they mean. Oh, wait, no, Saul's armor is... And so we, we start making up things about what this must represent. Oh, the five smooth stones. What were those? Well, if you're a good charismatic, that's the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher, right? <laughs> Clearly that's what those are. If you want to go slay giants, you need those five. Well, that may not be true. Well, no, the Ten Commandments is divided into two groups of five. That's what it is. We need the Ten Commandments in their groups of five. Five of them are relating to God and five of them are relating to man. That's what those five stones represent, right? I mean, clearly that's what it says. How about this? If you're a good Calvinist, any good Calvinists in the room? Anybody know what TULIP stands for? Total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, T-U-L, I forgot the L, whatever that is. Perseverance of the saints. Uh, what did I forget? Limited atonement. Those are the five stones to slay giants, right? I don't know. I suppose after... Lots of research and lots of study and talking to people smarter than me. And I came to the conclusion that Saul's armor means Saul's armor. It didn't fit. Or the five stones were 
five stones. They were rocks. Now, I'm teasing a little bit. I think we can draw illustrations, but not meaning. There's nothing in the Scripture that tells us that's what it meant or that's what this story is about. Now, if I looked into the future and Jesus said, this represented this, then I would know that is true. And I might be wrestling with something and God can lead me to a scripture to gain some understanding, but that isn't the the actual doctrinal original meaning of the scripture. When I read this story, what can I read and know what it means? I can see very clearly David trusted in God. David's faith was in God. David came in the name of the Lord. What can I learn? What was the author communicating? This is what David did. This is who David was. And so what can I draw as actual meaning from the Scripture? I should trust God. I can trust God. I can walk in the name of my Lord and deal with the issues in my life. That's not fanciful, difficult connection. That's biblical interpretation in a way that I can understand. That's about all I have time for today. But I want to encourage you, read your Bible. Think about these things. I should read it. I should pray when I read it that God can instruct me. I have some sources of information. What are they? What is the context of this passage of Scripture that I am reading? And then in a couple weeks, I'll continue sharing with you some tips and some understanding about how we go through the process of interpreting the Bible. Would you stand, please? If you really are feeling like, gosh, I I really need to do this. I need to get a... uh, some motivation to read the Scripture. I want to dive deeper into a place where I can actually understand what is being said in these passages. Then while I pray today, just really open up your heart to God. To, to Just really ask Him in your own quiet way to lead you in this. Because I think God, He loves you and He wants to stir you in His Word and His truth and draw you closer to Him. Father, we come before You this morning thankful for Your Word. Thankful that you have spoken to us through the ages and that your spirit continues to minister truth to us today. And Father, I pray for everyone in this room that right now is submitting themselves to you saying, Lord, help me study your word. Help me draw meaning out of the scripture. Help me be motivated about it. Help me find time to do it. Father, I pray that you'd be encouraging that and meeting each one that is reaching out to you right now in faith for that. Father, I pray that your spirit will be working amongst us stirring us, leading us, causing us to be fruitful. I pray for each one that you would bless them, lead them, guide them, that you would give them future and hope and understanding looking ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.